hello and welcome to another episode of Bright Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're, we're very excited for Dr. LeBron to come on and talk to us about every internist nightmare, hyponatremia. Dr. LeBron, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. I, I know everyone is excited about this topic. Hopefully, not, no one switched uh, podcasts right when you said the topic just then. Well, no, I mean, we've all gotten a call kind of from the ED, a patient with hyponatremia, and you know, our heart starts racing a little bit. And so hopefully you can take us through that and uh, make us a little bit easier about managing hyponatremia. So um, sure. just to start off, can you tell the audience just a little bit about who you are and your background? Oh, let's see. I, I'm originally, I'm a, a Louisiana boy, uh, displaced or misplaced into Mississippi, uh, trained in the military uh, medical school. I have, well, let me, let me take a step back from that. I have a uh, biomedical engineering degree from Louisiana Tech, uh, medical school at Tulane, trained in the military, did residency in Tacoma, Washington, fellowship in nephrology at Walter Reed, Spent a little time in the military, decided to get out and into academic medicine. And I was the fellowship director at UMC in Jackson for three years. Decided to go into private practice uh, in Columbus, Mississippi. And somehow, many years later, um, the folks at Baptist Golden Triangle in Columbus decided that they would uh, start um, a internal medicine residency and asked me if I was interested, but given my, my history and background in, in GME, and I thought there's no way they will get this off the ground, and said, sure. And lo and behold, uh, seven years later, here we are about to graduate our third class and, uh, and going strong. Well, thank you so much, and, and thanks for coming on to talk to us about this. Um, so let's just really start with the basics. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about hyponatremia? Is this, is this a salt problem? Is it a water problem? What are we dealing with? Well, my, my residents laugh because they've heard me say this so often. So, so hyponatremia is a water problem. And, um, and if you don't get that point, then you're, you're lost right from the, the start. So you have to understand that when we're measuring serum sodium, uh, in the blood, we're measuring a concentration. And so, and, and I'm a really simple uh, thinker here. I, I think like a second grader. So um, it's basically there's more water going in than water coming out. And so when a patient develops hyponatremia, it is simply that, that they're holding on to more water than they're excreting. And, I, you know, from there, the question is, why is that happening? And is it appropriate or not? Uh, and so that's where we kind of get started with hyponatremia. Okay, let's talk about a patient presentation. So a patient comes in, um, what symptoms or presentation would I look for to even think to check for hyponatremia? Well, I mean, generally we're thinking sort of neurologic symptoms you know patients can have uh, altered mental status that it, it, it may be the family brings someone in because they're falling more than usual um, they may be slightly altered it can mimic uh, you know stroke-like symptoms to e even excessive 
um, you know, where they're obtunded and having seizures. So anywhere in that sort of spectrum of, of neurologic symptoms generally is what we're talking about as symptoms for hyponatremia. So let, let's go into some more detail on this. So you get a call um, that you got a patient down in the emergency department and they have a, a sodium of you know, 113. And, that, and that's all you know um, from the call. What else do you want to know about the patient just right off the bat? Uh, I want to know if they're symptomatic or not and how, how symptomatic are they. Uh, I want to know if we have any old labs. Is this an acute issue or is this a chronic issue? And uh, I want to know, um, you know, if they have IV access because we're going to need to treat this. If they're that low, then this is probably someone who's going to need to go to a critical care setting and be treated uh, acutely. Um, and so those the main questions are symptoms at this point. And, and just to go into this, you know, you, you talked about that being pretty low and, and maybe needing ICU, but um, let's just talk about, um, you know, maybe the different stages of hyponatremia, if that's the right way to say it. Just, um, you know, you can get called with a, a patient with a, a sodium of, of 133, and that may be hyponatremia on the reference range, but a lot of us wouldn't think that hard about it. So um, take us through just the, the spectrum. Yeah, and, and I don't know if this is well written. I think most of us in nephrology sort of, I, I break these folks down into, you know, 130 to, to 135, sort of mild. Uh, 120 to 130 are the folks that eh, they might need to be admitted, probably won't need, you know, hypertonic saline, probably don't need to be treated acutely. And then when you get below 120, Especially below 115, you're thinking, you know, this is someone who I'm going to need to treat with hypertonic. I might need to give DDAVP at the same time. I'm probably going to need to monitor them in the unit. And so those are the more severe. Uh, and that's how I break them down. Uh, I've sent a patient home from clinic with a sodium 127 before, and I've admitted, a, you know, a 130 and, and done a pretty extensive workup. But that 120 kind of is my number that really raises the antennas when you get below 120, especially if there's any question of symptoms, uh, neurologic symptoms, then then uh, we need to act pretty rapidly. Okay, so what are some things I need to think about as far as causes of hyponatremia? Sure. So, like we talked about at the beginning, this is a water problem. So, why does the patient have an excessive amount of water? And a lot of the algorithms you're going to look at talk about uh, volume status, but but volume status is really difficult to um, uh, determine. You know, there were studies many many years ago. So a study where they lined up, I don't know, it was 50 nephrologists, the seasoned nephrologists, and, and had them evaluate, uh, I can't remember, a number of patients with hyponatremia. And basically, the ability of a nephrologist, seasoned nephrologist, to uh, determine volume status was about 47%, I believe. It's about a coin flip. So um, we're not very good at assessing volume status. And the body actually isn't either. It really 
is measuring perfusion pressure, right? The body's assessing perfusion and, and pressure and not volume. Um, but but be that as it may, we, we're trying to, when we see water excess and we see hyponatremia, we're trying to decide, one, uh, is this appropriate or not? Is there a perfusion problem and ADH is being you know, produced because we're not perfusing something or multiple somethings? And if that's so, how are the kidneys behaving and do the kidneys, are the kidneys seeing the ADH? And, and that's really sort of where I start is I start with a urinosome. I, I start with a good exam because, you know, even though I know we're not very good at at volume uh, assessment and I, and part of that is the the history you know if they have a history of heart failure and or cirrhosis those are things that are going to steer me down certain directions or or significant ckd um but the first thing i want to know is what they're besides that uh is what their urine osmolality is because that's going to tell me is adh involved in this problem or not so that's what I start with. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, volume status and then the the different ranges. So you know if somebody called you and they had a patient with the sodium of of one thirty and they'd been vomiting a ton um, and you know not able to eat and drink for a week, most people would think you know that patient's probably just volume down and maybe just needs some fluids that could correct it. And we'll talk about the management later. And then if somebody with excessive liver failure, heart failure, and a sodium of 128, um, you know, you may just need to get some fluid off of them. Um, and how much would you really, you know, worry about uh, needing to use hypertonic saline in, in those patient populations? I would imagine that that would, most of the time, that's not going to be a consideration. Um, I just wanted to, you know, start with kind of the mild and the moderate cases, and then we'll sure. kind of get into the management of the the severe more tricky cases, I think. Sure. So, so this someone comes in with a sodium of 130, and by your history, you've told me they're probably volume depleted. And by our exam, we go in and we may, you know, look at mucous membranes and we may look at skin turgor. You know, that's everybody loves to look at skin turgor, although I, I have no idea what I'm looking at with skin turgor. Uh, they look at their edema and they listen to their lungs, and all that's great. Probably the best test is orthostatics, you know, that's probably if we're going to really do something for an exam and look at volume status, orthostatics is probably my my go to. Although, you know, you get a gestalt of but the history is where, you know, you're going to get this information. And so you've got someone who's got a history of being volume depleted. So you would expect and this is a, a key thing. And let me go back and, and talk about my perfusion and 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 why problem conundrum here is ADH is also called vasopressin, right? And so ADH is in tune to our our osmolality, but it's also in tune to our perfusion pressure, our, our volume status, if you will. So this is what, how we get into trouble with hyponatremia in, all, in a vast majority of, of cases is that ADH gets turned on when you're not perfusing things despite the fact that you may be developing hyponatremia, and I always tell my residents, it's better to, to perfuse the brain with the wrong stuff than not to perfuse the brain, right? So it's 
better to develop hyponatremia and be able to keep perfusing things than to say, well, turn off ADH because the sodium's getting low, but we just won't perfuse the brain anymore. So the body has has compensated by saying, you know what? It doesn't matter when we get to the point where we're not perfusing things and our pressure is so low and our perfusion is so poor. It doesn't matter if we screw up the serum sodium. We need to perfuse things. So that's that's a key point to remember in that some of these patients are developing hyponatremia because they're just simply trying to perfuse things. So this patient who comes in, their volume depleted by history, and by your exam, maybe they're a little orthostatic. And, and uh, basically what you you know, you know you do next is you measure urine osmolality, is ADH around, um, and probably the urine osmolality is going to be high, indicating that ADH is around. And, and is this inappropriate? No, it's not inappropriate because the patient, again, is trying to perfuse things, trying to maintain pressure here, trying to maintain volume. And the other thing you could do is you can measure urine sodium, and urine sodium tells you what the kidneys think of the volume status, right? The urine sodium doesn't tell you anything about ADH status. It just tells you what the kidneys think about the volume status. The osmolality tells us if ADH is around or not. So we measure the urine osmolality. It'd probably be a little high. We'd measure the urine sodium. It would be low. We've got this patient's volume depleted. If I, vol if I give him back isotonic saline here, they're going to be fine. And they're probably not going to overcorrect. You know, that's something we can talk about here in a second. And so I can just volume replete this patient. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. And usually by the time you even get the call for that patient, they've already received some. They've already got heat. volume and their sodium's already coming up. And, and it, what you're doing is you're giving them volume. They're starting to perfuse things and they just turn off their ADH. And so urine osmolality will start to come down and they'll eventually start to get rid of this excess water because they're now perfusing things without the need for ADH being around. Okay. Now, the second patient was the, I guess, the, go ahead. Yeah, let's go uh, cirrhotic um, with a sodium of, you know, 127. That's very volume overloaded by exam. Yeah. So so this person's a little different in that, you know, obviously they're volume overloaded um, by exam, by history. And so why? And then you'd measure urine osmolality. And again, it's probably high, meaning ADH is around. So why is ADH around in this person? Well, it might be because of the distributive problem of of perfusion in someone who's cirrhotic where they just don't, you know, they have uh, uh, splanchnic dilatation and, and peripheral dilatation and, and um, they're sort of redistributing their, their circulatory volume. They're not perfusing their kidneys quite as well as they should. And if it gets too extreme, they can develop hepatorenal syndrome. And in this person because of and, and maybe their albumin is low and so they've lost some oncotic pressure and so again intravascular volume may be down and effective arterial blood volume may be down and so they're appropriately producing ADH to try to maintain um, circulation maintain perfusion maintain their volume status okay so I feel like we've done the the easy ones. Now let's get to the hard. 
Those aren't easy. <laughs> yeah, well, easy. I would say that um, the ones that worried me the most were the sodium of less than 120, um, where maybe it was in a, you know, and they had some some symptoms with it, and you were really worried about overcorrecting. And so that I guess that's why I said it was every, every intern's nightmare, because we were just always worried about overcorrecting, trying to get that sodium back up. So sure. you got a patient less than 120, um, and you can't, you don't know if they're volume up, volume down, or euvolemic. Um, and you're not sure if it's uh, an acute change in their sodium or, or chronic. Um, where, where are you starting with that patient and how would you manage it? Yeah, I, I, my sort of teaching, and everyone does this a little different. Um, if, they're, if they're under 120 and there's any question of symptoms, then I generally give them hypertonic saline. Now, I don't give them a lot. And, and you can calculate something called a sodium deficit. Um, now, it's not really a sodium deficit because they're, we don't know what their volume, remember, sodium deficit means their volume depleted, and we don't know what their volume status is exactly. But it's just the amount of sodium I need to give someone to raise their serum sodium to a certain level. And, and all I want to do in these folks is raise them by about five or six milliequivalents. I don't want to because I know they didn't probably get there quickly. I, I don't want to overcorrect them, you know, like we talked about, you know, and, and, and depending and on who you read, eight milliequivalents in a day, the first day. I, I, I shoot for about six a day is kind of my I don't want to go over that. And right. so what I what I tell my residents is if you panic and you can't, can't remember and they're less than 120 and they're symptomatic, Start them on hypertonic. You can start about 75 cc's an hour and give that for three hours. You got to. You, this is a person you've got to put in the unit, uh, in the CCU or ICU or whatever you call your critical care unit. And you've got to check very frequent, probably you know Q1 or two hour sodiums while you're doing this, and you're only going to run that for a short time. Now you can calculate the sodium deficit that you need. Need to, to give them, and you got to remember that hypertonic has a little over 500 milliequivalents of sodium in it. And so, if you calculate the deficit, usually you only need about 200 to 500 mLs of hypertonic to correct them, you know, five or six milliequivalents, and and just stop it after a couple of three hours, two to three hours, and see where you are. And generally speaking, their symptoms will go away or improve. Their sodium will come up to 120, and then you can start from scratch at that point. Now, there are others who are really symptomatic who I might need to give more, and it's kind of complicated, but a lot of literature now talks about this ADH or vasopressin clamp, or, you know, it's, it's sort of like putting the brake on while you're hitting the accelerator. So you're hitting the accelerator, you want to you wanna correct their sodium, but you don't want to correct it too much or you can get into you know central pontine myelinolysis or osmotic demyelination syndrome whatever the the term you want to use where you you injure the pons um, by overcorrecting uh, serum sodium and having water moving in and out of um, the brain because of these shifts in serum sodium but so what you do is you give them the hypertonic but at the same time you're giving them um, uh, ADH, and so you're sort of fixing their 
urine osmolality at a certain amount so that that variable is gone. So now I give them, it's like I said, it's called a, I think people call it a vasopressin clamp is what, uh, and there's a, there's a, go ahead. And so do you do that with every patient or just specific patient? Just if they're really, like I said, that this is, if they're under 115, very symptomatic, I'm not sure where their volume status is, uh, then I might do that with this patient, with that patient. If they're 116 and maybe they're a little, you know, off by their family and I give them like an hour or two of hypertonic, I check it again, they're at 120, I just stop at that point. And I, I can usually sort of follow them. I might have to give them a little water back. I might just water restrict them at that, free water restrict them at that point and watch. So I don't do that very often. I can probably count on my hand how many times I've done the DDAVP. Those are the really low, really symptomatic seizures. They're 108 and they're having seizures. I give them some hypertonic for three or four hours, but I'm so scared of overcorrecting them rapidly here. I start them on um, vasopressin twice a day at sub-Q, I think twice a day. I always have to look up the dose and that kind of fixes their urine osmolality. So now that variable has gone. And the thing that's controlling or changing their serum sodium is just what I'm giving them. And I can sort of give them free water or something hypertonic, depending on what their serum sodium is running. And I don't have to worry about them overcorrecting. What what you worry about is say you have someone that's 108 and their volume depleted and they come in with seizures and you give them hypertonic and you improve their volume depletion some, well, you turn off their ADH at that point or turn down their ADH. So all of a sudden, not only are you correcting them by what you're giving them, but their urine osmolality goes way down because ADH, you're now suppressing ADH. And so that's the person who goes from 108 to 125 in a day. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, And you're giving them back water at that point. Yeah, let's pause there because I, I want to go into that and, and talk about that specifically um, in a second. What to do if you overcorrected too fast. Um, but so we, we had the patient that was uh, uvolemic, um, symptomatic, below 120. You said uh, you would start them on hypertonic saline at about 75 cc's an hour, check a sodium you know, every hour or two, and at about three hours, you know, if, if they're sodium corrected by that, you know, six milliequivalents, um, you would just kind of stop. Um, and then if they were really severe, you would maybe add in that uh, clamp, uh, right. Right. Yeah, vasopressin, and, um, and go from there. Um, so that's with somebody that's acutely, you know, symptomatic, low sodium, what about somebody that, um, you know, comes in that's, you know, 115 and you get from history that it's, you know, they had actually had this on their outpatient labs five months ago um, and it's been consistent or, or you've, it, you, you get from history that it's a chronic hyponatremia. Sure. Uh, you know, and if they're not symptomatic, uh, and they're 115, they're talking to you, um, 
you know, I, I think you could still be justified to give them a little hypertonic to get them to 120 and make yourself feel better. But I, I wouldn't feel pushed at that point. So what I would do with those folks, if if you're nervous about giving hypertonic, then I, and then I would measure their urine osmolality and kind of prove that this wasn't tear toast or or you know beer potomania or poly you know polydipsy we didn't talk about those things but those are the ones you would check their urine osmolality would be low and they're just basically taking in so much water without solute that they're they're able to over overwhelm the kidneys and hold on to free water and and that's a whole nother category and usually those people are pretty obvious when you when you measure the urine osmolality. It's very low, and you know that ADH is not the problem here. It's it's what they're taking in is the problem. So we're we're going to go back to your example, which is probably someone who, if they're chronic, um, you know, they've got a little liver disease or something else, or maybe they have SIDH, and, and you know, we we can work our way down the algorithm, and we've ruled out everything else, and and there's ADH around. You know, those are the people you free water restrict. It never hurts to free water restrict somebody. And then you've got to sort of figure out what can I do to increase um, free water excretion and decrease the effectiveness of, of ADH. And that's when you get into some of the other therapies um, like I like to use PO urea. Um, Urea is a medication, uh, uh, and it's actually, I think it's sold as a supplement um, or a food um, source. I'm not, I don't think it's considered a true medication by the FDA, um, but it's just excreted as an osmol. And so it has to take some water with it. And so when you give someone PO urea, it gets, it gets filtered and excreted at, and it, you know, if your urine osmolality is fixed at 500, then some of that solute now is excreted instead of uh, sodium as urea and take some water with it. And so you can actually increase water excretion and kind of slowly raise. So you're looking at doing things like that uh, to those folks who are chronic, sort of smoldering in the, you know, low 120s, high teens. But the first thing you got to do is just free water restrict them. Um, you can also put them on a little bit of a loop diuretic. And, and what that does is it just sort of dilutes out the part of the kidney that where ADH is working. And so it you sort of give them a, a little bit of a or a partial nephrogenic DI. You're, you're sort of blocking the effect of ADH. And and that will also sort of slowly raise your serum sodium because it allows you to excrete a little bit more free water that makes sense because ADH is not as effective. So there, you've got some time. Um, again, I think, like I said, free water restrict up front, and then you've got some time to figure out what can I do to sort of make ADH not as effective and add things to the system that will allow you to excrete more free water without lowering your serum sodium even, even more. That makes sense. Now, would you put that patient in the, in the hospital? Uh, I'd say anybody under 120. Absolutely. Got it. Um, right. I think I think if you're under 125, you should be admitted. Um, it, probably getting a fight with, you know, we could line up. Uh, you've never seen anything like a nephrology rumble. We could line up 50 nephrologists and 
you know, somewhere 125 to 130, there'd probably be a big rumble of who does what. I have I have seen patients in clinic that have been stable at 125, 127, and I haven't, and I probably should have. And uh, that may be where the, the rumble starts, uh, the, uh, the pro admission versus the <laughs> can send home. But I think anybody under 125, probably they, they should be admitted. Uh, I'd say a gray and someone who's 128 and very stable. Okay. And, and so before we get to the the overcorrection and how to deal with that, um, let's just talk a little bit more about the causes, especially somebody under 120. Uh, what are the different things that can cause hyponatremia? You know, we talked about hypovolemia. Um, we've talked about We've, we've mentioned SIADH, but maybe you can comment on that a little bit more, but um, other causes, medications we should look out for, et cetera. All right. Well, the, 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 the classic is, you know, sort of when you, when you look at, um, uh, again, hyponatremia, is, is ADH around or not? That's the first thing you want to kind of rule out. If, if ADH isn't around and you're, and you know that by the urine osmolality is now, really low. So the kidneys are are on your side at this point. I always tell the residents that look look and see what the kidneys think about this. And if the kidneys are trying to get rid of the water and they're still hyponatremic, then you got to think that this is probably one of those where uh, patients choose it's either polydipsia. Uh, and usually that's pretty clear. And you've got to drink a lot. Remember, you can dilute yeah. your urine down to, you know, 50 milliequivalents per liter so you got to drink a lot of water to get your your serum sodium down um i think it's 18 liters i may be i may be misquoting that over over 24 hours you can excrete in urine so um don't quote i'm saying this on a podcast and saying don't quote me on that so uh it's so it's a lot of <laughs> yeah it's a lot. You know, nephrologists, we can usually just spout out numbers and hope no one's uh, writing this down and uh, and uh, no one will fact check me on this. Uh, no, I can get this away is, with that. This is around for all the world to hear, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> They'll figure out after a while that LeBron didn't know anything, uh, didn't know what he was talking about. Um, anyway, suffice to say, you can produce a, a lot of urine and not get into trouble but you can overwhelm it. And so the first thing you want to do is rule out, is this not an ADH problem at all? And it's just, just someone who either is just not taking any solute in. So, you know, beer, we always talk about beer potomania. Well, beer is, you know, basically water to a nephrologist. It's, it's a little bit of carbs and, and water. And so it really has no solute. Thank goodness they put, you know, pretzels in bars, uh, well, they do that to make you thirsty to drink more, but that also helps because it uh, allows you to have a little solute with your with your water, basically. So, you know, the, the beer potomania, the folks who are just drinking a ton of alcohol and and their PO intake otherwise, they're getting all our calories from from beer and there's just no solute. So they're just overwhelming their kidneys in that they've got to excrete, you know, this urine with something. And so a little sodium gets lost and. And uh, they get hyponatremic, and, and then the polydipsia is just simply they're just drinking more than they can excrete. So the first thing you do is just measure the urine osmolality, make sure ADH is around. So in most cases, ADH is around, and that's 
part of the problem you develop with the hyponatremia. And so the second thing I always think is, is ADH appropriate or not? And, and so if ADH is a, you know, if it's cirrhosis or heart failure or severe CKD, a lot of times the ADH is appropriate in that, you know, these patients are just trying to maintain perfusion. Um, also in, you know, thyroid disease and uh, uh, Addison's or, or adrenal issues, it's a little bit convoluted in that I think a lot of it just has to do with, again, ADH is probably appropriate because they don't perfuse things. Uh, in adrenal disease, remember that ADH is produced near the areas in the brain where um, sort of the beginnings of cortisol production start, and so there may be some some cross wiring there of, of uh, you know, trying to make up for true uh, primary, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, Addison's primary uh, adrenal insufficiency. And, and so there's probably maybe some cross wiring there and, and excessive ADH is produced there. Um, so, you know, it's usually pretty easy to work your way down this algorithm and to try to figure out, okay, ADH appropriate or not. Uh, if it's not, then you sort of work your way down the, is there adrenal problem, is there a thyroid problem? And then once you've sort of ruled those things out and the patient seems to have good perfusion pressure, ADH shouldn't be around. That's when you sort of arrive at SIDH. And once you, you know, that's, we always talk about it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but once you've arrived that you can't figure out any other reason why ADH should be produced at this point. And, um, you know, you don't have adrenal issues and you don't have thyroid issues and you've come to SIDH, you really need to find a reason. I don't think I've ever seen SIDH without a malignancy somewhere or some reason why someone developed SIDH. You can see it. I will say this. You can see it acutely post-op or, you know, things like that. And usually it's very transient. ADH release is very transient. People who with sustained hyponatremia, though, who you end up making the diagnosis of inappropriate ADH, um, then typically you can find some reason. There's some hidden cancer somewhere. So we talked about why we didn't want to overcorrect. What happens if we do overcorrect? Well, that's when the brain, uh, which has gotten used to uh, being perfused by blood that's, you know, hyponatremic with a lot of water in it. And it's sort of gotten rid of some of its intracellular solute to, to maintain a balance here between the extracellular fluid being a little hypotonic and intracellular fluid being hypotonic. Now you've, now you've raised... And that's something we didn't talk about tonicity, but um, tonicity is the ability of a solute to move water in and out of cells. And that's why urea we don't get too worried about because it really doesn't have tonicity. And uh, um, something like glucose, uh, sometimes it has tonicity, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't have tonicity as long as insulin's around. It has tonicity if you have no insulin and it can move water in and out of cells. So anyway, back to your question. So You've got someone who's gotten used to this low osmolality, lots of water around. It's gotten rid of some of the intracellular solutes so that the, there's a balance between the extracellular osmolality and intracellular osmolality. And now you've acutely raised the 
extracellular solute concentration, the osmolality, tonicity, whatever word you want to use. And so now water is going to want to move out of the brain into the extracellular. It's going to try to equalize the, the osmolality. And if you've done that rapidly, then a lot of water can move and you can do some damage to specific parts of the brain. And the pond seems to be the place that a lot of this damage is done. And people can develop this, uh, and at worst, it's uh, locked-in syndrome, I think, is what some of these folks can get. Uh, and it generally doesn't happen right away. It, it, it can be days later after you've done the correction, which is kind of interesting. And I, I've only seen this once or twice, but it, it can be just devastating to, to patients if it does happen. Um, so you're trying to give the brain a little time to adapt to the changes we're making with with the osmolality. If you overdo that, if you overdo it in your first day or two, all of a sudden you realize, you know, you've raised them instead of six or eight milliequivalents, you've now raised them 15, 20 milliequivalents, then you need to lower their serum osmolality as rapidly as you, not rapidly but you need to lower your your osmolality and get back in that range and that means potentially giving them uh, adh or vasopressin and giving them free water and getting their sodium back down to sort of that that value that kept you in that uh safe range of how quickly we're raising them and so when do you see this the most the overcorrection is it is it the patient that comes in volume down that gets a lot of um, normal saline? Yeah, generally that's where I've seen this happen in, in that there is some volume component to their hyponatremia. They may be, maybe their heart failure, their cirrhotic, it's their combo platter of problems, but they're also volume down. And so you give them the hypertonic and ADA, are you give them, you treat them, and their ADH just turns off rapidly. And I know snapping your fingers is always good for podcasts, so I just <laughs> snap my fingers. So anyway, uh, uh, you correct their their uh, their need for ADH really quickly, and those are the patients I've seen get into trouble. Now, I also think that some of those patients probably tolerate a little bit. It's, it's interesting. I always think the, the volume down patients tend to tolerate the changes a little better. It's the chronic, the ones that I've seen get into trouble, really trouble and develop uh, central pontine myelinolysis or osmotic demyelination syndrome are the ones who have been chronically low and someone gets real aggressive with hypertonic um, mm -hmm. and puts them on a loop diuretic at the same time and doesn't put on the, the, you know, the, the vasopressin ADH clamp and really suppresses ADH abruptly and they go up. And those are the ones that I've seen get in trouble, go up quickly. Um, for whatever reason, the volume down folks, and probably because the volume down folks haven't been hyponatremic for that long. You know, you don't, you don't generally get really volume down and sit at home for the next, you know, six weeks and say, you know, I haven't been able to get off the couch because my blood pressure's, you know, 60 uh, systolic. Maybe I'll call someone and go into the. Generally, those people are sort of more acutely in that setting, and so you get away with raising them a little quicker. 
it's the ones who have been chronically, you know, days and days, weeks and weeks, months, hyponatremic that someone decides to be heroic and correct them rapidly. Those are the ones that I've seen get in trouble. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but the longer you're hyponatremic and the quicker you correct them, it's so it's both quickly and how long they've been hyponatremic that puts them at risk. Now that's that's helpful. And you know, when I when I was joking at the beginning of the podcast, this is every internist nightmare. It's because of this complication that we yeah. always get worried. Um, but so what you're saying though is, if you have somebody that came in like the presentation we described earlier, euvolemic, um, symptomatic, less than 120, and you put them in the unit and you start them on a slow correction, and you're checking in you know every hour or so their sodium and you know, maybe even stop it at hour three. In your experience, what is the risk that that patient um, overcorrects and you know ends up with this devastating diagnosis? Really rare. I, like I said, I, I've probably seen it once or twice. So I, I'm not maybe three times. I'm trying to remember and uh, the dusting off some old neurons back there. Um, seen it very rarely. I mean, if you're that, that's the thing about it is uh, you know there. There is no need to correct hyponatremia rapidly after the first couple hours. Get them out of the problem. Get them out of the symptom area. Get them out of, get them to 118. If they were 113 and they're having symptoms, get them out of that and then stop being aggressive at that point and let them come up slowly. There is no reason to take someone who was 113, you correct them to 118, they've stopped seizing, they're talking to you. There's no reason to be aggressive at that point. Fluid restrict them, let them come up slowly from there. And so would you even continue to use hypertonic saline? No, I, no. I would stop okay. at that. Yeah, I, I, I get them out of symptoms and get them up four, five, six, or get them to 120, and then I completely stop it at that point. And you That's why I say just get, okay. I'd fluid restrict. I might put them on, you know, I'd look and see, okay, where's their, their urinosmolality kind of end up and where are they from a volume standpoint? And and I might use a little loop diuretic. I might use urea. I might use some of the other little tricks we can do, but there is no, there's no rush at that point. Okay. So I know, you know, we, we've had you on longer than we typically do most guests just because this topic is, is really complex i'm sure you could do several hours on it and it's really interesting to me but and hopefully i didn't talk in circles here so i i don't think so it certainly made me understand it a lot more but you know what else what other you know kind of closing advice would you give to medical staff as they approach this topic yeah like i said i think the first thing to remember is one this is a water problem two you need to know is ADH playing first thing to do is rule out is ADH playing a part of this or not and you do that by the urinosmolality and then you want to sort of get a feel for their volume status and and I always ask the kidneys what they think of the volume status and that's why I get a urine sodium the urine the kidneys are pretty good about telling you oh you know yeah we're we're nervous about this volume status and then again if they're symptomatic uh, and there are less than 120, I get them out of that quickly. Otherwise, there is no rush. Food restrict, read about it the next day, you know, th that night, come back the next day, and you can slowly get them out of it. But if, but if you're being aggressive up front, they're symptomatic, and they're really low, less than 120, less than 115 especially, 
and you're going to give them hypertonic for a little bit, then, and I think that's appropriate for a little bit, then you might want to think about putting on the brake. As you're touching, hitting the accelerator, you hold the emergency brake there just to keep them from getting better too quickly. So I hope that makes some sense. Um, no, it does. You know, it was very helpful. I, I think just lastly, when would you um, think this patient would need a nephrology consult? <laughs> well, you got it now. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Early on. Yeah. I think anyone who's getting hypertonic, you nephrology should be about. Now, there's probably some critical care docs out there that would roll their eyes at that. Um, but, you know, I, I think we should be helping when you get to that point. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think a nephrologist should be involved at that point. But, I, you know, I, there, there may be some some debate in that. I'm always willing to help. Yeah, no, and you know, we're always grateful for your help, for sure. We, we learn a lot. I think the other thing is probably someone who's chronic, who you just, you've done all the usual stuff, and they're on the wards. You know, you've got the heart failure patient, because we didn't talk about the VAPTAMs, and there's some other things yeah. you could do um, in heart failure patients, you know, which are the, you know, the true um, diuretics. We, 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 we misname diuretics are the really naturetics right they they increase sodium excretion uh, the true diuretics are the baptams because that's water loss and so um, we didn't even talk about that and uh, you know and someone who's volume overloaded uh, the heart failure patient usually is and I think anyone who you're going you're considering baptams or you know aquaporin uh, channel blockers then nephrology ought to be involved yeah, definitely. And it sounds like we we can bring you back and do a couple more episodes on the topic. So <laughs> that's a yeah, that's a whole nother topic. I'll, I'll have to read uh, before we do that one because uh, those those drugs, you know, looked like they had a great niche and and they kind of uh, they they hurt the liver. Unfortunately, there were some liver problems with with those drugs, and so I don't think they're approved for any more than a month at a time. I, I do have a few patients with polycystic kidney disease who are on those very low dose and uh, because they seem to decrease cyst growth in, in those patients. Well, thanks. And, and thanks again, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.